Now look, sometimes it's easy to look at something, particularly maybe something which you're familiar with or which is familiar in a culture, and to not really see it as it really is. Um, a few years ago, the um, Met Police were doing some diversity training, and the training that they had showed um, a CCTV footage of a young hooded youth running down the road clutching a handbag. So they played the CCTV footage for a little bit, him running along the road, and then they paused it and said to the assembled um, police officers, what do they think they were observing? And of course they discussed, and most of them said what, you know, I imagine many of us would think, that they thought they were observing a crime, or at least someone fleeing the scene of a crime. They then um, asked them to hold those um, thoughts for a moment, and then they played the CCTV footage on, and the young man continued to run down the street, and it turned out that he was chasing after a bus, and he pulled up alongside the bus as it slowed down towards a bus stop, and he banged on the side of the window, and the bus driver looked a bit surprised and pulled over, and then it cut to the CCTV footage on the bus. As the young man got onto the bus and walked past the, um, the driver and then walked straight up to an old lady and returned her handbag to her. And of course, you know, it was just showing the way that they thought they had seen something, but actually, looking more carefully, there was something very different going on. Now, the reason I share that is that in my experience, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the death of Jesus Christ is one of the most misunderstood events of history. I mean, you can ask people on the street about it, and the majority of people think they know about it. They think they see what is really going on. A good man dying tragically. That's what most people kind of think. A good example maybe for us to follow. But the whole point of this passage is that that is not what is going on, that we need to look with different eyes to really behold what is going on. And the wonderful lavish reaction that happens in this passage from the woman is precisely because she has this understanding of what Jesus is about to do. She sees at a time when many other people don't see. And you might be thinking, well, why is that important? Well, Jesus Christ claims that his death is the door into a relationship with the God who is there, the God who made you, the God who loves you, that his death is the means by which anyone can have forgiveness for anything they've ever done wrong. He claims that by understanding and trusting in his death, you can have eternal life. The magnitude of those claims, even as I rattle them off, is so enormous that if you can't grasp that if that were true, that would have huge implications for your life, it's difficult to think what would kind of, you know, make you think about the importance of it. They're huge claims. Now, whether they're true or not is what we're here to discuss and to look at. But that's what Mark is writing about in this passage. So let's look at this passage. And we're actually going to flip the passage around because the way Mark writes it is to provoke the question of why the woman responds with this lavish devotion of pouring out the perfume. And then he explains it by Jesus' Passover meal. We're going to turn it around. We're going to look, first of all, at Jesus' understanding of his death through the Passover meal, and then we're going to look at the response of the lady. So let's start in the second half of the passage, first of all. And we'll ask the question, what the Last Supper tells us about Jesus' death? What does the Last Supper tell us about Jesus' death? Three things that I want us to see. First of all, that Jesus is in control of his death. Jesus is in control of his death. Now, very few of us will be in control of our death. That's the nature of death. It's something that's done to you. And so the assumption normatively is that Jesus' death was something that was out of his control. A famous book in religious um, historical circles was written in 1906 by a liberal theologian called Albert Schweiter. And in it, um, in the books called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, he argues a familiar line which has become very popular over the years, that Jesus was a, was a good man uh, maybe a social revolutionary. He was trying to get the wheels of change to turn in ancient Palestine. 
But he was no Messiah. He was no son of God. And all that happened was as he got the wheels of change turning over, tragically, he got caught under the wheels himself. And that was his death on the cross. A good man dying tragically at 33 years of age. Now, it sounds like a nice story. And of course, it has a popular level appeal. But the problem is the facts. Because Mark's gospel is written on the back of the Apostle Peter's testimony, one of the eyewitness accounts. And the um, testimony, the um, gospel of Mark, was in wide circulation within 20 or 30 years of Jesus' death, late AD 50, early AD 60, in the place where the claims were made. So the people who could believe or refute the claims were right there to deal with the eyewitness testimony. So you can't do the Chinese whispers hypothesis, that won't cut it. And look at what Mark says happened. Does Jesus come across in this passage as someone who can't control his death? Look down with me at verse um, 13. Jesus sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Can I ask you, does this strike you like a man who's out of control? That history is happening to him? No, far from it, right? He's in complete control. He's orchestrating every fine detail. He's done all the preparation to the, to the minutiae of a man, um, the type of man, the room. He's orchestrating everything. And you might say, okay, but that's just a meal. What about the rest of it? Well, is he caught off guard by being betrayed by Judas? Did, that kind of, did he not see that coming? No. Look down, verse 19. They were, sorry, verse 18. While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. I mean, he's in control of the details of the meal. He knows who's going to betray him. And as you read on, as we will do over the coming weeks and do come back, you will see Jesus leaves nothing to chance. He's in complete control of when he dies. There are numerous doors that he could have taken along the road to the cross. Exits through door number one type thing. He takes none of them. This is not life happening to him. This is not him caught under the wheels of history. This is him orchestrating everything. He's in complete control. No detail is outside of his purview. He sees everything. He executes it. He is deliberately going to his death. Now you have to ask, why is he doing that? Well, let's look at the next bit. Jesus is in control as the Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb. Now, this meal was one of the big celebrations and festivals in the Jewish calendar. And all of the Jews would gather around um, in Jerusalem. And the high point of the meal was on this first evening where they, um, where they have this Passover meal. Think of the significance of Christmas Day and our kind of Christmas turkey meal. It's that type of cultural significance. It's a public holiday. Everyone stops. Everyone gathers around. The only thing is this meal is slightly different because um, whereas when we're having our Christmas meal, we sit around and chat to one another, this was more formal and the host of the meal would speak at various points in the meal to explain the significance of the meal. Because the meal was remembering the time when the Jews had been called out of Egypt um, through the Passover, a time when God judged the Egyptians and liberated his people. And so the host would explain all the parts of the meal and the way they related to that. Now, this meal was famous particularly for three things. Bread, 
wine and the lamb, right? It's the Passover meal, it's about a lamb. The bread, symbolically flat or unleavened bread because the whole point was the Jews didn't have time to prove the bread because they were in a rush when they left Egypt. And so they remembered that with um, flattened or unleavened bread. And the host would take the bread and he would say, behold the bread of affliction that that our Lord gave to us when he redeemed us from Israel. And then they would come to the wine and he would hold up the wine and he would talk about the significance of the wine as a feast of celebration because we're a liberated people now. And then of course they would eat the lamb. But did you notice when Mark explains the meal, how we get bread, verse 22, we get wine, verse 24, but no lamb. I mean, that is like documenting the Christmas meal and not talking about the turkey. I mean, I love the turkey. It's the main point, right? I mean, the bread and the wine without the lamb is just an aperitif, just an hors d'oeuvre. It's not a meal. You've got to have the lamb to have the meal. You've got to have turkey to have the meal. And so to miss out that detail, you're thinking, why is Mark doing that? Well, the point is, Mark is not missing the point. He's making the point. Look at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, notice the emphasis Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? In other words, the lamb is flagged up and then not mentioned. And the point is, Jesus is the Passover lamb. And you get that from his explanation, actually, of the bread and the wine. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. Uh, Some of us who are churchgoers will be familiar with these words from the Lord's Supper. But think before that, Jesus is taking the bread and he's saying, my body is going to be broken like I'm breaking this bread. And of course, they didn't understand it then, but in in a day or two's time, they would understand it. Then he takes the wine and rather than holding it up and saying, this is the wine of celebration because the Lord has liberated it, he holds up the wine. He says, my blood is going to be poured out like the wine here is poured out as you drink it. He's really clear about what's going on. He is saying, just as there needs to be a Passover lamb in Egypt, that the judgment of God fell on the lamb so that the people could be set free, that's why the Lord passed over the houses where the lamb had been killed, so now I am the ultimate Passover lamb. And if you are trusting in me, if you understand and receive my death in your place, the Lord will pass over your sins. The judgment will pass you by I am the substitute. I am the ultimate Passover lamb. In uh, 1986, um, Pan Am Flight 73 was seized by terrorists at Karachi Airport. It was pro-Palestinian terrorists. And the lead air hostess of the flight was a lady who became famous for her actions in what followed the next few hours. Her name was Nirja Banot. And when the um, terrorists seized the flight, Their plans became very clear early on. They asked her to round up all the passports because there were some 44 American passengers on a 340-seater plane, and they were going to sacrifice the lives of the American passengers to try to get freedom for their Palestinian terrorists who were imprisoned in Cyprus. She realized what they were going to do, and so when she was told to gather up the passports, she actually chucked them away and hid them under seats and chucked them down the mud chutes so that they couldn't, sorry, down the rubbish chutes, they couldn't find them anymore. They were obviously 
aggressive with her as a result of that. And then as the negotiations continued outside sort of trying to release the prisoners, eventually it became clear that they were not going to release them and they started um, opening fire as the security forces stormed the plane. Nirja ran to the nearest exit and she opened the door and she started ushering the passengers out as quickly as she could. She could have gone first. Many of her colleagues jumped off quite quickly, but she stayed behind. She tried to get everyone off, and as the last few passengers got off in the melee, one of the terrorists grabbed her ponytail, pulled her back onto the flight, and point-blank range shot her and killed her. There was a seven-year-old boy on that flight um, who was saved as a result of her actions. He went on to become a pilot and a captain of a major airline, and when interviewed recently, he said that he owes every day of his life to her sacrifice in his place. Don't you see? She substituted herself. She stepped in to take all of the danger so that people could be set free. And it's a wonderful picture of what Jesus does. He is the Passover lamb. He steps in. He takes the judgment that we deserve. That's what the meal is about. He is broken so that we might be made whole. His blood is poured out so that we might be washed clean by his blood. He is the perfect Passover lamb who takes away the sins, the moral failures of every human being so that we can be reconciled with God. Jesus is in control, dying wonderfully as the Passover lamb. And thirdly, third point for this, for the new covenant. Jesus is in control, dying as the Passover lamb for the covenant, for the new covenant. Do you notice how Jesus says in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant or the new covenant which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. A covenant is a slightly strange word. It means a binding relationship. Um, Think of a marriage, that is a covenant. It's a binding relationship between two parties. And in the Old Testament, there was an old covenant. And the covenant said this, I will be your God, said people, and you will be my people if you obey what I command. In other words, God gave a wonderful gift of a relationship with him, but it was was conditional, it was predicated, it was contingent on people obeying him. And of course, God's people didn't obey him in the Old Testament, which is why the covenant was broken time and time again, uh, like a faithless bridegroom to his bride. But notice when Jesus gives this new covenant, do you see any ifs or any buts? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. That's the end of it. In other words, this covenant is unconditional. There's no ifs, there's no buts. This covenant is not, I will be your God and you will be my people if you do these things for me. No, this covenant is, I've come to die for you, to be your God and for you to be my people. And there's no ifs. I mean, that's just so revolutionary. Every human religion seems to say to us, do this, and if you do this, if, then you will get heaven, enlightenment, uh, Brahman, whatever it may be. But Christianity is completely the opposite way around. Jesus comes to you and he says, I have done all this for you. It's unconditional. And because it's unconditional, now go and live for me. But not because you're earning it. There's no ifs. I've done it all for you. It's radically other. It's completely different. This is the new covenant that Jesus offers to all people. And I know because you're like me in your hearts, you'll be saying, come on, there must be a catch. All right, I'll let you in. Here's the catch. You're listening. The catch with Christianity, 
There is no catch. That's the catch. I know, it's disappointing, right? There's no catch. In Christianity, there really is such a thing as a free gift, no ifs, no buts, given to you through Jesus Christ. It's that simple. The hard thing is people don't want to receive it. We like to think, oh, I've, come on, God, it's got to be, I've got to do something. No. There's no catches. It's an unconditional covenant. Jesus is in control, dying as the Passover lamb for the new covenant. That is what Mark and Jesus want us to see is going on. Well, if that's what's going on, if that's what Jesus' cross is really about, then the woman is the one person in this narrative apart from Jesus who really sees it, and she responds in an amazing way. Look at verse 3 earlier on. While Jesus was in Bethany, that's a town a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem on the pilgrim's journey up to Jerusalem, reclining at the table in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. The woman responds with what I've called lavish devotion. The woman responds with a lavish devotion. We see that in a response as the point comes up on the screen. But notice how her response is contrasted with the other two groups of people. First of all, her response is very different to that of Judas in verse 10. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now Mark emphasizes the costliness, the lavishness of her act. Because in verse 5, we're told that her perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wages. We're talking of thousands of thousands of pounds here. But we see in contrast that Judas was delighted, you know, and sorry, was um, delighted to give up Jesus and the chief priests allowed to betray them for money. In other words, it's a complete contrast. The woman at great monetary expense sacrifices for Jesus. Judas sacrifices Jesus, Jesus for great money expense, doesn't he? It's a completely the opposite way around. She gives up a sacrifice for Jesus. Judas gives up Jesus for the money. It's completely opposite. And we're intended to see the complete otherness, the complete difference between her and Jesus. But my hunch is that many of us are not seeing ourselves as the betrayer of Jesus and as Judas. And so there's another group where I think we really do connect. Verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, I've got to be honest. When I first read this story, that was my reaction. You see the costliness of what she's doing and you think, well, it's lovely and it's devoted, but surely thousands of pounds? I mean, doesn't Jesus care about the poor? Couldn't the money have been given to the poor? And you're thinking, they've got a point, right? I mean, try to, if you've been a Christian in church for a while, one of the problems is you get too familiar with things, and so you, you don't notice the obvious. Just try to snap yourself out of it for a moment. Isn't that just intuitively the right reaction? I mean, wasting all that money, there are poor people, does Jesus not care? And in fact, you know Jesus cares if you read the gospel, because he time and again talks about the importance of giving money to the poor. So you know he cares, so why now does he seem to like encourage this act of, I don't know, wastefulness? The point is that Jesus is making is that, yes, giving money to the poor is a good thing, but sometimes in life, the good thing can be the enemy of the best thing. And he is bold enough to say about himself that he is so valuable 
and his death is so important that he is the best thing. And therefore, whilst giving money to the poor might be a good thing, if in doing that you actually miss him the best thing, you're missing out. Now, I think that has real currency for us because often I'm talking to people who are considering investigating Christianity and quite often the narrative goes like this. Yeah, I can see that thinking about Jesus is probably a good idea. I probably need to look at him at some point. I've never read the Bible as an adult for myself, so I've got a lot of assumptions and questions. The problem is, Pete, I'm really busy at the moment. Life is just busy. Job is busy. Family is chaotic. Friends are busy. When I get time, then I'll get in contact, and then we'll look at it. I think maybe even people here, I'm not looking at anyone in particular, I've had that conversation with. Now, that's a good thing. Job, life, family, busyness, all good things. Thank the Lord for them. But if they get in the way of investigating and finding out who Jesus is, the best thing, the most important thing, the one who has the keys to heaven and hell, the one who can give you eternal life, the one who can wash away your sin forever, the one who made you and loved you, if that good thing gets in the way of him, the best thing, then surely that's a mistake. And it's not just people who are looking into Christianity. Many Christians start to follow Jesus, and they're walking along with Jesus, and they care massively about him, of course, but they also care very, very strongly about the opinions of their peers, what people who are in their friendship group will say, what will Facebook say, what will their colleagues at work say. And sooner or later, they're asked to believe something in the name of Jesus that cuts against the grain of the culture and where their friends stand. And their friends have this conversation, which is, you're not one of the Christians that believes that, are you? Well, right now it's on a knife edge. And if you care more about the opinion of your friends or family or Facebook or your colleagues than Jesus, you turn around and you go, no, 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 I'm not one of those. No, no, I, I believe other things about Jesus. Oh, good, phew. Oh, we're all right then, we can get on. And you see, you're choosing your friends over Jesus, the good friendship has become an enemy of the best. Jesus, the one who's died for you. And we all feel that, Paul. Can you see the danger? We might not see ourselves as Judas, but do we see ourselves as some of those present who see a good thing, a worthy thing, but it's not as valuable as Jesus who died on the cross? Well, let's look finally in contrast at the woman. I want you to see how lavish and how devoted her act was. It was lavish because it was so expensive. This would have been a family heirloom. These um, jars were stone jars cut from alabaster, um, beautiful and ornate, filled then with very expensive perfume um, that a woman would wear, and a grandmother would give it to a mother who would give it to her daughter who would give it to her granddaughter, handed down over generations. And it would be a jar with a very long neck, so that you could only pour a small drop out at a time and you would put a stopper in the top of the neck. Sometimes women would even wear it around them as a necklace, as a kind of sign of beauty. But certainly at significant moments in their life, significant because it's so expensive, they would take a drop and they would use it as perfume. But just for the really significant moments, uh, maybe a man you were courting or maybe a wedding or an important event to give that beautiful aroma of feminine perfume. And what the woman does is, because it would take too long to pour it all out, she snaps the neck of that bottle so that it can all come out. And she pours it, anoints it on Jesus' head. Now, it's lavish, it's expensive, because it's thousands of pounds worth of perfume. But I want you to see also it's devotion. There's a real devotion here, because what is she doing? Well, what is perfume to a woman in an ancient society? 
It's her femininity, it's her beauty, it's her, to some extent, it's the allure that brings in a relationship and maybe a husband, right? And so what she's doing is she's saying, take it, take me, take it all. I give it all to you. My money, thousands of pounds, they're for you, Jesus. My beauty, I give it all to you, they're for you, Jesus. My femininity, my future relationships, I pour them out on you, Jesus. Do you see what she's doing? No wonder this is often described as one of the most beautiful instances in the Bible. Lavish devotion. What motivates it? She sees who Jesus really is. Jesus himself says that, verse 9, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She gets the gospel, in other words, and therefore this will always be linked to the gospel. It's a response to the gospel because she anointed his body beforehand to prepare for burial. She realized he was going to die. One final thing before I close. Look, I wonder, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I wonder, just as you're thinking about this, she's giving up her family heirloom, and in a sense she's pouring out at Jesus' feet her kind of longing in some sense. The perfume was more symbolic than just perfume. It was almost like a longing, a symbolism of her relationship, her future relationship, her possibility of getting a husband. And in an ancient society, the reason you really wanted a husband if you were a woman was because it was a patriarchal society. And so if you wanted your name to be extended and your family line to go on, you had to get married and have children. Today, of course, we do it differently. We do it through our achievements, and I could negotiate with you another time if that's any better or not. But for this woman, she's saying, I'm laying it all down, Jesus, at your feet. I'm pouring it out before you. The possibility of a future with a husband. I'm giving it over to you. I don't know what it's going to hold anymore because I'm giving up my perfume and my possibility, therefore, of securing a man and a husband. And because of that, she doesn't know about the future. Will her name carry on? Will she have children? But look at what happens. Jesus says in verse 9 that because of that, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told. And here we are 2,000 years later, and it's being fulfilled, right? We're talking about her. In other words, if she'd had children, we don't know what happened with her life. How much longer would her name have gone on? A few generations? But she would have been forgotten, not remembered by family anymore. But because she poured it all out for Jesus, here we are 2,000 years later and her name has gone on and we're still talking about it. In other words, it's gone further and it's gone wider than she could have ever possibly imagined because she trusted Jesus with it. She poured it at his feet. Can I ask you, what is that thing, whether you know Jesus or not, that you would say to him, Lord, you can have anything, that's fine, but, but don't ask me for that. It's too precious for me might be the, um, the approval of your peers. It might be your career. It might be the possibility of a relationship. It might actually be the relationship you're in. And you'd say, Lord, you can ask anything of me, but don't ask of me that. It's too precious. But don't you see? She pours it out at his feet, and she gets back far more than she could have ever imagined. That's always the way. Earlier on in Mark's gospel, Jesus has said in Mark chapter 10, verse 29, these words, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is not saying that by sacrificing things for him, you earn those things. He is saying that holding out on him means you forfeit the opportunity of blessing in your life. 
Some of us are holding on to things so tightly like this, and he wants to say, my friend, open up your hand, give it to me. Take my life, my Lord, I pour at your feet, your treasure store. That's what we are being asked to do. I'm ask you just to pause for a moment as I close. What is that thing in your life that you've been grabbing onto for so long? You've heard the call of Jesus to give it up. Maybe it's the very thing that's stopping you coming to him. And you're saying, I, I don't think I can give it up. Do you see what he's done for you at the cross? In complete control, the Passover lamb dies for the new covenant for you. And when you see that, does that not liberate you to go, I give it to you? The woman did, and she received back far more than she could have ever imagined. Do you trust the one who died for you enough to take him at his word? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this woman's response is deeply challenging. It's deeply puzzling initially at first, and it's deeply beautiful as well. But ultimately, it flows from an understanding of who Jesus is and what he was about to do. We now look back. We know what he's done for us. He has died for us to be the perfect Passover lamb so that we might be forgiven and set free. Help us in response to deny him nothing, to hold back from him nothing. Would we as a church here be characterized by whole life devotion? Lord, as I pray that, I'm aware of how significant that is and how challenging that is. But I do believe you're a good God and you are no person's debtor. Help us all to believe it too, we pray for Jesus' sake.